0: Let's pray and we'll, we'll start, okay? Let's pray, guys. Father, um, well, Lord, thank you, Lord, for this day. We do thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, uh, that you get us here um, all in different circumstances and through the midst of various um, situations and difficulties. We do pray for Shaw's little boy, Lord Caleb. We lift him up to you, God. We pray that you would have the um, um, just the, the symptoms of uh, his bites, that they would subside. Lord, and uh, that he would recover very quickly and uh, be restored back to health. Lord, we know that those fire ants can be very dangerous. And um, so we thank you that he's okay, Lord. And we ask your, your blessing now on our time, Lord. Please give us guidance and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So is this on out there, out there now? Okay. All right. Good. Well, if you're out there, if you're in the hallway, if you're, uh, if you're uh, looking to come into Sunday school, now would be an appropriate time to do it. If you don't have a good reason for being out in the hallway, you definitely got to come in here and do it. So let's start with um, what we've been looking at, and that is the doctrine uh, of foreknowledge. Now, you remember, uh, you remember the, uh, the graph that I, I pointed out. Well, we didn't get all the way through it, but we're going to go back slowly and go all the way through it. So um, this is what these next uh, few lessons are going to be all about, is walking us through... The order salutis, the order of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, which is soteriology. And you remember the first three categories. Uh, what were the first three categories on that graph? I'm going to give somebody some serious points if they get that. If it's not Pastor Chris, don't even think about it. Foreknowledge, predestination, election. There you go. Foreknowledge, predestination, and election. Now, what, uh, what aspect of salvation was that? What, do you remember that, that part of the graph? Conceptual. I, conceptual. Now, is that a monergistic or synergistic aspect of salvation? <laughs> monergistic. There you go. Very good. Wally, all right. If I had candy, I'd throw it to you. <laughs> so uh, let's start with, um, let's, go back to, <laughs> let's go back to foreknowledge, and uh, let's, let's just start with a simple definition of foreknowledge. Can you all read that? Divine foreknowledge is God's sovereign decision to set his covenant love upon his elect through union with Jesus Christ or union with Christ. That is a very simple working definition of the concept of foreknowledge. You remember that foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God does not simply mean that God knows things ahead of time, right? It's much more intimate than that. And that's what we gotta that's what we gotta get into is the idea of of how is foreknowledge used in the Bible? What is the background of the words that are used for foreknowledge? Where does it come from? Where does the idea come from? And furthermore, where does the formulation of the doctrine come from? Now that we have this whole doctrine of it, we have this definition. Where does Scripture bear this out? You see, that's kind of those are kind of the uh, the questions that we want to ask. And uh, yes, sir, Carlos. When you,
1: say, when you say more of an intimate foreknowledge instead of just knowing what's going to happen. Right. You're, you're, you're meaning like he, he's the author of what is going to happen in the foreknowledge.
0: Well, um, that would be more. Um, yeah, I mean that's part of it. That's definitely um, the author, meaning that he, the things that he decrees, the things that he has determined or purposed or willed, right? And that's certainly part of this. But specifically in the area of salvation, because obviously we believe God has decreed all things, but specifically in the in the area of salvation. The foreknowledge of God is God's uh, decision to enter into an intimate, I would say, covenant relationship with us. Um, Just really remarkable how, um, I mean, I've grown in this, you know, throughout the years. My theology has definitely grown. I I hope it's grown. (laughs) But uh, I've grown to come to to really understand um, the covenant nature of God, that God is a covenant-keeping God, you know it says that god keeps covenant you know to the you know to all generations you know and god is a god of covenants he works that way that's the way that he is uh, chosen to unite himself to us and to reveal himself to us and uh, when you really start understanding just the concepts of uh, the covenant, the covenants that he makes, you know, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with David, the covenant with Moses, the covenant, the new covenant with, through Jesus. You start understanding. understand, wow, God is really serious about covenants. You know, well, it's because he binds himself uh, to these covenants. It's because his own presence and his own relationship with us is bound up in these covenants. And that's why God is, you know, chosen to to move in a covenantal fashion. Now, what is the vocabulary of 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 uh, foreknowledge? Remember, I gave you a couple of a couple of terms, and uh, these are the terms. I'm going to give you uh, two of them. The one is the Greek word is uh which that's the infinitive uh, form of the word. Uh, the Hebrew derivative, in other words, where does the background of the Greek word come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament derivative of the Hebrew word yada. You see that there? yada. Can you all see? Uh, Chris, can you see that back there? Um, K-Dub's big old head's in the way. Oh.
2: <laughs> okay. If K-Dub's
0: big old head wasn't in the way, could you see it? I need two boxes. I need another platform for that. But uh, what do you think? Can you see it or no? see it. You can? We can read it too. Okay, good. So if you can read it, then there's no excuse for anybody else because you're the way in the back. So, good. Yeah, so <laughs> that's the vocab. This is the vocab, okay? Pragenosken and uh, yada. This is where the language of foreknowledge comes from. Now, what is the um, what is the Old Testament use? How does the Old Testament use uh, yada, for example? Well, there's a ton of scriptures um, that use this word, many, many more than the scriptures that you see here. Um, there's, these scriptures are selected because this, you know, combination of texts really shows you the wide range of meaning that yada can have, to know. The, the Hebrew word yada just means to know, but it's translated in various ways, in various contexts. Uh, from this one Hebrew word, we learn that God is a God of love, that God is a God of care, that He comforts His people, He cares for His people, that He chooses His people. All of those meanings are bound up in this Hebrew word, and that's the way it's translated at different, you know, passages. Um, so let's see some Old Testament uses. So Genesis eighteen nineteen. You'd be surprised. To know that the NASB has translated this word in Genesis eighteen nineteen as chosen, you see that he says, "Is that coming up up there?" No, I'm I'm one late. There you go. I have chosen him, talking about Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So, there the idea of the word, the Hebrew word yada, meaning chosen. Um, if you have, I think an ESV. Uh, text it says um, uh, to know to know him. So that idea though overlaps. Uh, let's see some other some other verses here. Uh, Hosea thirteen five. This idea of love or nourishment as well. I cared for you in the wilderness in the land of drought. That's the Hebrew word yada. So now we get this idea that yada is bound up with the idea of to choose, bound up with the idea to care or to love. Uh, in this fashion, I would say in a covenantal fashion, because who's he talking to? Hosea chapter 13, verse 5, he is talking to the covenant people Israel, right? So you start seeing some of the nuances. Yes, Mike. This is kind of like in line with the marriage covenant.
2: Well,
0: marriage yeah. In, uh, God yeah. Christ. Marriage is a covenant, and ultimately marriage is an analogy of the ultimate marriage, which is the bride of Christ and bride the bridegroom Christ. Yeah. The marriage yeah. It was a it was a great shadow. It was a, you know, Paul says that you know all the while we've been speaking of this, he says we're talking referring to a mystery, a great mystery, right? Which is Christ and His Church. So that's absolutely right. Now there's two crucial texts that I want to point out. Jeremiah 1.5, we've looked at this one before, and then Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, Both of these uh, are important because, again, one has the idea of God's foreknowledge properly, meaning uh, not only that he enters into a covenant relationship with people, but that he does that prior to time, right? So that's uh, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, a lot of times we use this passage to uh, refute abortion, right? Saying, see, this is, I mean, God cares about who is in the womb, and that's right. That is not what this passage is about. (laughs) This passage is about God's foreknowledge. This passage is about God's uh, covenant relationship with with Jeremiah. The fact that he had uh, chosen to enter into an intimate uh, covenant bond with his servant Jeremiah now here, of course, he's being chosen for the purpose to be a prophet. Uh, but look at Amos three two. Uh, this is interesting because this now has the idea that is connected to the doctrine of election. You only, I have chosen, watch this now, among all the families of the earth. Isn't that interesting? Uh, ESV translates it to know. Again, you only have I known right, from all the families of the earth. Well, the NASB kind of draws that out a little bit further by rendering it to choose. And certainly, I mean, it seems a bit more accurate to say to choose because um, you might be reading Amos 3 and think, wait a minute, Uh, God only knows Israel out of all the families of the earth? Doesn't God know everything, right? Well, obviously, the word there to know means more than just for him to have a a science or even a pre-science, a prior knowledge Uh, of something or somebody, in this case, the nations. But here, the particularity that God has uh, chosen to enter into a relationship just with Israel. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the doctrines we'll get to is like the doctrine of atonement, right? And the concept of atonement, is it definite atonement? Is it universal atonement? Is it limited atonement? You know, all these questions. Um, a lot of times we can just go to Israel to get a good picture of what the doctrine is teaching. I heard uh, one gentleman, you know, refer to the the doctrine of atonement, and, and he went back to Israel, and he said, Well, clearly, I mean, in Israel, atonement was for the whole nation. Everyone, right? Not just individual people out of the nation. But what's wrong with that argument? Anyone? Anyone? It's just Israel. It's just Israel. <laughs> the high priest does not go into the holy place and the holy of holies to make atonement for the Amalekites or the Jebusites, right? All the different Zeits, right? That's, like at That's right. That's what I'm saying. It's a perfect picture of who does God provide atonement for. And in the Old Testament sense, we could say his covenant people. In the New Testament sense, well, we can say, well, his covenant people. Things are a little bit different now because we're no longer in a in a uh, theocratic covenant, a national covenant, right, where you can have a mixed multitude within that covenant. But in the new covenant, everyone will know the Lord, says Jeremiah. No one will have to say to each other in the covenant community, know the Lord, for we will all know the Lord. And there we go with the, the true meaning of John 3.16, right? That's right, that's right. Which, um. Yes, ma'am. That verse that you just said. Yep. What was it again? Um, it's in Isaiah, right? Uh, yeah, Isaiah 31. That, um, it's also quoted in uh, Hebrews 8.
2: Which presupposes that you're evangelizing. <laughs> On the other... Oh, sorry. I had to... My wife can't help herself. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Everything
0: comes back to passing out tracts. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. Because
2: because if in, in heaven, we're not going to do that
0: anymore. It's showing that we're... Yeah. That's
2: right. By say, know him, know
0: him. That's right. He'll come into the covenant. That's right. The ark, and, that's right. You know. In heaven, no one will need to know the Lord. They will know the Lord fully. So that's almost like the, the covenant consummated, right? Um, uh, this is what I wrote about foreknowledge. The, the apostles understood that God's foreknowledge meant more than just God having prior knowledge of future events. God's foreknowledge speaks to God's sovereign decrees and sovereign plan. Uh, for example, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Um, let me ask you guys a, a quick question here. Are you guys, Chris, you too, don't, don't be shy. Um, is it okay for me to put up the scripture verse up here? Do you like that, Chris, or, or not as much? Nobody's looking at their Bibles. That's what I'm saying, yeah. I'm such a biblical, like I want to hear Bibles turning. I don't, I don't ever want to take away from that, so let me just have a vote. Let's just show, uh, uh, raise your hand. Do you like the v- actual verse on the screen? Oh, I like at least the reference. And we're, we're turning into real Baptists now. <laughs> do you like, do you like just, so Trish cheated. Do you like just the reference? The, 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 that's the hardcore right there. <laughs> that's the hardcore group right there. Just the reference. Make them look it up. You
2: well, know, honestly, just for me personally, yes. it benefits me that the more I go through the Bible, yes. the more I remember where
0: it is instead of just looking at that's it. That's right. That's, that's absolutely I right. Felt- you know, a lot of people tell me, like, how do you know the Bible so well? Part of it for me, which I don't think I know it very well, but part of it for me is that I, in my mind, I remember what page it is in and where, what section it is in. And, I mean, that's really how I've learned to interact with. That's why you won't find any notes or any writing in my Bible, ever. I don't write in my Bible because I don't want to lose that Bible with all my notes and all my, you know, happy faces and everything. And then I'm lost, you know, without that particular Bible, so I want to be right able to. Right. I want to be able to trade this Bible in and out. You know, if I spill coffee on this Bible, you know, uh, I've got this beautiful leather cover. I mean, this thing's like. Bu- that's really why I have it, because it's, it's bulletproof. Anybody shoots me in the pulpit, I just you know, <laughs> this thing's got to stop a bullet. You know, but.
2: <laughs>
0: oh really? Well, I don't do it. I don't, do any, I don't do it for any sacrilegious reasons. I just don't do it because it's not good for my Bible memorization. But, uh, but here, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Now I've derailed everybody into Bible memorization. Uh, but it says here, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Put him to death. So there, the idea of the foreknowledge of God having to do much more than with God knowing things ahead of time, but also with what God has chosen, what God has decreed to do. Okay, um, God's foreknowledge has to do with God's decree to choose us and set His covenant love upon us through Jesus Christ. So here we go again. First Peter, First Peter, chapter one, uh, beginning in verse one. It says, "An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are." Watch this. Chosen, okay, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. So there you have a very explicit text that tells us that our election is based on foreknowledge, right? So when we're talking about, let's say you're having a conversation with someone, somebody who's more maybe Arminian in their thinking, okay, very Arminian in their thinking, and you raise the issue of foreknowledge, and you begin to say, well, what is foreknowledge? Well, foreknowledge is, you know, has to do with God deciding to set his love upon someone. Well, no, 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 no. foreknowledge just means to know ahead of time. It can't possibly mean that. Because in First Peter, we are told that this foreknowledge is part of our election. So unless you're getting ready to say that everyone is elect. Because obviously God knows everyone exhaustively. He knows everybody. He knows about them. That is, he knows that they would exist. He knows that he would make them. He knows that he would create them. He knows that they would be alive. Uh, but this has to do with God's knowledge, His foreknowledge. That is, His decision to enter into relationship with them. So, um, divine foreknowledge and sovereign election cannot be separated, and they are rep- uh, repeatedly found in Scripture as a uh, together as a congruent reality. So. For example, turn with me to Romans chapter eleven. Turn with me to Romans chapter eleven. Okay. So this is a this is kind of a big one here. Of course, Romans chapter eleven, and here I only have the verse. So some of you are happy right now. I mean, I only have the reference, not the words. Uh, but Romans eleven is really big because obviously, Romans eleven comes from Romans nine. Romans eleven, if you would is the fulfillment or the completion. It's kind of like he starts in Romans 9, he finishes in Romans 11. And then, you know, especially by the time you get to chapter 12, the argument between uh, 9 through 11 is over. He moves on to some other practical matters. So Romans 11 is really how he finishes up talking about everything he introduces in Romans 9. And uh, keep your hand there in Romans 11 and just jump over to Romans 9. Romans 9, and look with me at verse 6. He says here, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That's a very interesting phrase. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What in the world could he possibly be talking about, right? What Paul is saying there is that there, uh, to be an ethnic group, jew to be an ethnic israelite doesn't necessarily mean that you are an israelite at least in the way that he means it here in romans 9. Uh, kind of the same thing that he says in romans chapter 2 a true jew right what does he say in philippians chapter 3 we are the true circumcision right not made with hands but of the heart so i think what romans uh, 9 and then romans 11 is talking about is true israel spiritual israel those that belong to uh, not the nation Israel, um, but the spiritual house of Israel. That's short for the elect. Um, okay, look at verse 11, verse one, uh, verse 1 here. Chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Because right? this is the whole argument of, of the book of Romans, is how in the world are Jews perishing? Was not Jesus descended from them? Were not the covenants, didn't the covenants come from them? Wasn't the promises made to the fathers? Don't they have the oracles of God? You know, on and on and on and on. Why is it the Jews are perishing if they have all these promises? If the (coughs) Messiah came from them? Um, It says, Paul says then here, may it never be. Uh, In the Greek language, that is the strongest form of negation. Uh, That's why the King James and others would say, God forbid, you know, may it never be um uh, absolutely not for i too am an israelite i a descendant of abraham of the tribe of benjamin sounds a lot like philippians 3 right he says god has not rejected his people whom he foreknew <laughs> see that or do you not know and then and then how does he explain this concept here of foreknowledge to know ahead of time i don't think so he says or do you not know the scripture that says uh, in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down the altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my, uh, my life. But what is the divine response? In other words, uh, Elijah didn't quite speak right. <laughs> uh, and God had to respond to him to correct him. He says, and this is the divine response, I have kept for myself Seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and what what is the how does Paul uh, connect the dots here? Look at verse five. In the same way, there has also come to be at the present time. Watch this: a remnant, lema, a remnant. That's a huge theological uh, uh, word, a huge uh, theological uh, idea in the Old Testament. <laughs> remnant. Uh, If you just do a whole study of remnant theology in the Old Testament, it's just amazing that God always promises to save a remnant, and it's ultimately a foreshadowing of what Paul is talking about right now. And then look at what he says, that this remnant was according to God's gracious election or choice, right? But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. So ethnic Jews can't work for this grace, or else it wouldn't be grace, and then verse 9, I think, is, is, or verse 7 is the key. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. That is the way that the Apostle Paul ultimately interprets foreknowledge. Any questions? It's pretty self-evident, right? I've either completely confused you or at least raised some curiosity. Yes, sir. i
1: got a question about, okay, it's clear that uh, foreknowledge the way it's used, like you're saying, I was in the Bible, it's about uh, salvation and about those who we know as far as covenant-wise. Yes. But it's also clear that he doesn't use his word for what he foreknows about, for example, um, he said to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very reason that I might show my power in you. And then he said to, uh, about Judas, you know, he was going to betray him. So obviously he knew those things beforehand, but he doesn't use that word to describe them, you know, foreknowledge. That's right. Even though
0: he knows. Right. What we call that
1: for those?
0: For for those that are not chosen? Yeah. Right. Well, um, Wayne Grudem uses the word reprobation, Mm -hmm. and so that's a... You know, that, that, that doctrine is often presented alongside of election. So you have your election and reprobation. So reprobation would be like the doctrine, uh, not of double predestination, but of the idea that uh, God in sorrow passes over the non elect and allows them to go their way, their sinful way, so that he might display his justice. And we'll, we'll come to some of those concepts, you know, in a minute. But uh, these are hard and heavy truths. I mean, let me tell you something. Um, as a young Christian, I remember grappling with the doctrine of predestination, election, foreknowledge, reprobation, and just having a really, really hard time with it. Uh, because, of course, I was raised Arminian. I mean, I was raised with the doctrine of free will. I was raised with the idea that God is a gentleman. He will never violate your will. You know, God stands at the door of your heart and he knocks like a gentleman, you know, knocking and say, may I please come in? Okay, Um, but then, you know, I started seeing things in the Bible that just didn't square away with that. I mean, uh, was God a gentleman when he knocked uh, Paul off of his horse on the way to Damascus? I mean, he he didn't seem like a gentleman. (laughs) He he seemed like a pretty authoritative, sovereign God that can turn the heart of the king wherever he pleases. And so I started looking at some of these texts and saying, like, wow, how does this flesh out? How does this square away? And somehow... um, the responsibility, the accountability that man faces before God is not in conflict with God's sovereignty over him. And that's the way that I've chosen to uh, to view it. Uh, to me, it does no good whatsoever to erect a doctrine of free will that does not exist in the Bible. Uh, f- the doctrine of free will is a platonic idea. It doesn't come from Scripture. You say, well, yeah, but it says a free will offering. It's the only place you're going to find an entire Bible where it says free will, Right? But the free will offering has nothing to do with the autonomy of man. The free will offering was about the church, or then Israel, going above and beyond in their worship of what was required. That was it. Mike, did you have a question? I'm I sorry. Did,
2: uh, I think God answered it already.
0: Good. <laughs> Good. <coughs> yes, sir? Well,
1: since, you're, since you're there um, on the election part. Yeah. Free will. Uh, John 6... Uh, 33, yeah, where father draws
0: him? 44.
1: 44. Is the word draw, it's like the same word that's used to grab a bull by the nose ring and pull
0: it? Yeah, I've heard it's used yeah, and it's, of... Uh,
1: and it doesn't want to go?
0: Right. Well, I mean, in a sense, yeah, I mean, it can be used to drag, right, to draw. It can be, you know, we, we, people um, can either misuse the application of that idea Or we can see it uh, for what it truly is, which, you know, God, in his sovereign grace, overcomes our rebellion, okay? But we have to be careful that we don't conclude with this idea that we go into the kingdom kicking and screaming. You know, no, 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 I don't want to follow Jesus, right? Here's, you know, Father's trying to draw us, and here we are kicking and screaming against the Father. That's not the way that the effectual calling of God works, Right, Effectual calling, the regeneration of God works in such a way that when God does effectually call you, which means he actually calls you to salvation, it's not just evangel- it's not just evangelism. That is the, that is the means that, that it can happen, right? Through the word, reading the word, listening to the call of God. But uh, once God has sovereignly called you, you freely desire to come to him in faith and re- repentance and faith. So that's, uh, we've got to be careful there. Um, you guys probably read all this. It says, It should be a great comfort to us to know that God does not reject those whom he foreknews. Going back to Romans 11, he has not rejected his people, has he? God forbid. But we have to define who is his people. Because I've been to Israel uh, a couple times, and I've sat at the Western Wall, and I've had conversations with Orthodox Jews, and let me tell you something, they hate the Messiah. Mm-hmm. They hate Jesus. They blaspheme. You read the read the uh, the Mishnah, the Talmud. Read the Jewish writings. They blaspheme <coughs> the name of Christ. They deride Christ. Uh, they, they say things that are not even, you know, that you can't even repeat. They're so offensive about Christ. So Jewish people, because they're Jews, does not qualify them to be the true Israel of God, right? And even though they're according to what Paul's saying, though they were seeking these things, right? As Paul would go on to say here, they have a zeal without knowledge. Right? Just like Paul. Paul thought he was doing a good thing by persecuting Christians and stamping out this sect of the way, by stamping out these you know, Nazarenes, and, uh, you know, but he was misinformed because a veil laid over his eyes. He was blinded, blinded by uh, tradition blinded by unbelief, ultimately. So uh, this is why I put down that, you know, it should be a great comfort to us to know that God does not reject those whom he foreknows. You know? And this is where my passion as a pastor is to get people to see the doctrines of grace as a comfort, right? Not as a controversy, right? Because if it's just a controversy swirling around in your mind, then you have never yet gone to the point where you have been comforted by God through his sovereign election. I remember one uh, old friend of mine who was really wrestling with election and and, and the sovereignty of God, and he was just having a really hard time with it. He was mad at all the Calvinists, you know, and he was just really upset at John Piper and everything. (laughs) And, uh, and, And I remember him coming to me once, and he said, you know, he said, the thought dawned on me, why am I so mad at God that he chose me? What am I mad about? I am mad that God would choose me? Hey, before we even get to, well, he didn't choose others, right? But why am I so angry that God chose me? Like, how offensive that must be to God. You know what I mean? See, it's all about perspective. If we come to it with a perspective of our human autonomy, and we want our rights, and we want free will, and we want to be as sovereign as God, then yes, you will continually axe your grind at God. Um... And this can go very deep into somebody's soul, into somebody's heart. Um, Good friend of mine, Justin Peters. You guys know Justin Peters, many of you? I mean, mean, he kind of shocked me, surprised me with the, uh, you know, with the uh, confession that he believes he was recently saved, uh, maybe a couple years ago, and that he was angry at God for being sovereign, and that he did not want a God of election and predestination and sovereignty, and he said, you know, I just, I, I was angry. I said, I could not have been saved because I was too angry at God. I I had a, you know, I had this thing, you know, that just, this uneasiness. I just didn't, I you know, I was just this internal battle going on that nobody knew about, you know. It's just like, <laughs> so, you know, that's why it's important to get to the point where we actually uh, see uh, Foreknowledge, election, and predestination for what it is. Anybody got any similar stories or feedback or any confessions like that? <laughs> yes, sir?
2: Well, anybody maybe mad because they think that now that they know that, maybe their past family members or, Yeah. you know, well, what about my parents? What yes. about my
0: sister? What about my friends? That's right. That's what makes it hard.
2: So my family's Catholic.
0: Yeah, when I got saved as a young Christian, I was 19 years old. God saved me by his grace, uh, free and sovereign grace. He saved me. And uh, just a couple days after I got saved, I wrote down on a piece of paper the names of every single one of my family members that I could think of, both on my father's side and on my mother's side, over 150 names. Mm -hmm. And on the top of that piece of paper, I wrote, not one Christian. There was not a single Christian in my entire family. And I began to cry and I began to weep. I called my father and through tears, and through yelling at the top of my lungs, I called him to repent and I begged him to get right with God, and uh, scared the living daylights out of him. But uh, you know, but uh, it, it is it is. Uh, I'm
2: trying to save a copy of the biggest question, but I gave him out on the train to South Carolina, and I wanted to <laughs> give him a copy. And I went to my brother and his wife in there, so I mean. I don't know if prayer because they just, you know, it's the Blessed Mother did this, and I prayed the Blessed Mother you'd have know, a safe trip. Why why well, you pray to her. I mean, I just you try to, I mean, it's like, I will we'll talk to the
0: wall. I mean, it's, it's tough. Amen. Amen. So how does, um, how does foreknowledge election and predestination, how does it work together? Uh, what do we think? Are these synonymous terms? Are they synonymous? Are they, uh, can we separate them? Can't really separate them, right? They kind of go together. So uh, this is the way that I wanted to conceive of it. You guys can give me some feedback. Simple definition as I could give, right? So foreknowledge is God's decision to know us. And maybe expand on that a little bit, obviously, like we've talked about. To enter into covenant relations with us through Christ. Election is God's decision to choose us, and that choice is discriminatory, meaning he chooses us and he does not choose others, right? He chooses some and he does not choose others. Predestination is God's decision to order our destiny towards him in a saving fashion. Anybody want to comment on that? Chris, anything? You got anything to add to that? There's a lot of
1: overlap on those, you know. It's yep.
0: Soft. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so Romans eight. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh anything? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm supposed to be able to. Okay. Yeah. So go to Romans eight because that's where we're going. Because right, that's where the, you know, that's the big kahuna, right, of all of this, where the Apostle Paul ties it all together, right? Romans 8. Beginning in verse 28, oh, how many times do we hear this verse? Verse 28, right? Bible promise books, right, usually on the cover. So they don't read that's right. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him. Stop. That's as far as most people want to go. Yep. <laughs> That's not the end of the verse, right? To those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that remarkable? But we're so man-centered, huh? Mm-hmm. We're so man-centered. We, we think it's all about our purpose, you know? Uh, pastors could be the worst at this build my little kingdom here on earth, my little ecclesiastical ministry kingdom. right? When it's really his purpose. Right? It's God's purpose, not ours. Uh, what does it say? I think it's in Acts chapter, I think it's 1348 and you have to look it up. But there it says, you know, David, after he fulfilled the purpose of God, he died. And that is like a banner over all of our lives. After you fulfill the purpose of God in your, in, in, in your life, in your generation, then you will go to sleep. See, we are here primarily for him, not for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that's where the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession, that's where all the great confessions of the faith will say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what the chief end of man is about. You know, what is man's chief end, Chief man's chief end? purpose. You talk to people about their purpose. I do all the time at UNT. I get get the glorious privilege of talking to college people whom I love, who I have an insatiable love for because I want them to reject humanism and embrace Christianity and I want them to stop living these self-destructive lives of hedonism and I want them to enjoy God rather than sin forever. But, you know, I talk to them a lot about their purpose and what is their purpose. And uh, that's why, you know, I think I shared with you guys, this girl that came up to me and she was weeping after our preaching and stuff. And she said, you know, I start I lost my faith in the Bible. I've gone through some stuff lately. And, you know, I just started to lose faith in the Bible. And she's like, I started believing. I started studying uh, philosophy and I started studying existentialism, the idea that everything comes from within, that we are the measure of all things. And she said, I started concluding that there really is no point to life, that That nothingness is all that there is. Can you think of anything more diabolical than that? Mm -hmm. To get a human being to conclude the point of life is nothingness, is emptiness, right? Is, like Carl Sagan would say, we are all alone in the universe, right? I mean, that is so evil. Mm -hmm. But she said, you guys restored my faith in the Bible that, that day, and I still see that girl from time to time. She says hi. Kim?
2: Well, I was just going to say, just for even searching that out for herself, tells you that life is meaningful. Amen. She have gone there in the first place. That's right. There's that. It's
0: it's in us. I mean, God truly really designed to know that there's more to even become That covenant. But also, I was going to comment about, yes, ma'am. Um,
2: you know, you were saying how people don't like to go past that one verse in Romans.
0: Romans 8, 28. Yeah. See, says, <laughs> they don't even want the whole verse. Right. Well, it reminds me of John 3,
2: 16 as well. You know, you always get that cliche of the worldly-minded. You know, well, God loved the world. He died, you know, for everybody's sins. And they never, they never go down a little further where it says, for those who believe. So it says, he who <laughs> believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged judge already. Yeah. So if you go further down, and he pointed this out to me a while back, and yeah. it was a good witness to even our family members because they would always go there. Well, God died for everybody, like for those who believe. Yeah, the only
0: the only two verses that people know is you know, for God so loved the world and do not judge. And do not.
2: Judge, okay. yeah.
0: and that's it. Yeah. Nothing. There is no other Bible. You know.
2: Right.
0: <laughs> um. <clears throat> yes. Um. So here we see, according to God's purpose, and then I think that verse 29 is really explanatory of that last clause, God's purpose, right? Of how he calls, what is his purpose, verse 29, for, to explain, oh, uh, the Bible is a propositional book. The Bible is a book of conjunctions and coordinating clauses, and it's grammar, Uh, and it's brilliant. I mean, uh, I, I agree with John Piper, Romans is the greatest letter ever written. You though right now, Hebrews is kind of giving it a run for its money in my, my mind, but my heart. But no, uh, Romans is the greatest letter ever written. Um, did you guys have any of you guys have heard that even uh, in, law, in many law schools, especially back in the day, uh, the book of Romans was a common textbook for understanding logic and argumentation. And they would use Romans as a test case for how you argue. How you construct your arguments, how you engage in diatribe and these types of things. Very interesting. So Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, and there I would say at this point when he says those whom he foreknew, we have a fully, um, what is the word I'm looking for? It's totally developed at this point when he's talking here. This is no longer talking about like what Genesis was talking about in terms of foreknowledge, uh, in terms of caring for someone or taking care of someone or, or even choosing someone for a, a, a temporal task. Here it is talking about uh, the, the, uh, the word in its entirety, that's fullest sense of the word. Soteriological, right? Uh, foreknown, that is, chosen to come into uh, a relationship with, and those who he chose to have a relationship with, and it just makes sense. He also predestined, right? He ordered their path toward him. He predestined to become what? Conformed into the image of his son. That is uh, uh, just a way of explaining salvation. Uh, Conformity to his son. um, I mean, what is conformity to his son? Sanctification. What is it? What was that? Suffering. Suffering, sanctification, right? What else? Glorification. Okay, so now we have a different aspect of that, isn't it? So conformity to Christ does not just mean sanctification, but it also includes final conformity, which is glorification, right? That we might be conformed, you know, to His likeness. That as He is, we will be. You know, John tells us, so that, he says, so that we uh, he would be the firstborn, that is Jesus, among many brethren, that is us. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Now that calling is where we get the doctrine of like effectual calling, that he actually summons us to salvation. And these whom he called, he also justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So there you see the logic of, um, of this passage and how it works out. Now, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. <clears throat> I guess if nothing else, putting the verse up here is good for people that don't have a Bible. I don't know why you don't have a Bible, but, you know, that's another conversation.
2: Also,
0: if you got King James, you can see what it really says. <laughs> we got you, man. I like the King James, man. It was my Bible for four years. I think it was uh, the Old King James, and then I switched to New King James for about seven or eight years. Is
2: there much difference?
0: Yeah, just the the these and the shouts and the per adventures and the quit yourself and you know all that stuff. And the Oh yeah, oh just just ask Jonathan. He's got all the he's got all the words of antiquity memorized like right there. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad Jonathan that you're not King James. Cuz you would be like crazy King James. <laughs> <laughs> Juan uses King James, but he's not like crazy King James. (laughs) Juan, you don't go around talking in King James, right? (laughs) Well, you know, like Joe Beakey in Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, some of those seminary grads, I've heard their lectures and their uh, chapels and stuff when they preach, they like speak in King James and they pray in King James. I'm like, wow, if I ever want to know what the Puritans were like, I just go there, you know, (laughs) listen to them. But um Okay, so, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. What a magnificent, wonderful text. As you can see, the different aspects, different elements of election and predestination are there. Okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Question for you guys. Um, Question, question, question for you guys. Um, This phrase... This, this phrase is our life. I mean, this phrase is everything. John Murray said, the, the doctrine of union with Christ is the most important doctrine in all of soteriology. I happen to agree with him. But here's a question, and here's a, here's a view. Let me see if you guys can help me out with this. Would it be accurate to say that it's not so much that God elected us but God elected His Son, and because we are in His Son, in that sense, we are elect. You hear that, Chris? Yes, sir. You're back there messing around? Sorry. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He was saying hello to me.
0: What is wrong with the view that says, and we'll close with this, what is wrong with the view that says God actually only elected Christ, and by virtue of us being in Christ, in, only in that sense we are elect. Is that
2: like yes, me, ma'am. For me, it jacks with my understanding of the Trinity, maybe.
0: Hmm. It, how so? I didn't even. I didn't well, even go there.
2: It's, it separates the persons, the, the God, into these two different entities. In some sense, to me. I huh. mean, then God elected himself.
1: <coughs> it also goes against certain scriptures, like those who foreknew those whom he foreknew. He's talking about that's plural. Cool.
0: So cool. it's not enough to just say God just elected Jesus, and because we're in Jesus, in that sense, we are elect. No, because he it would, it would have to say, um,
1: instead of those who he foreknew, it would be like him, you know, mm-hmm. singular.
0: But, but what about this text? Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Heavenly places in Christ, he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world. It says he chose us. And yet, he chose. Sorry. He chose us. Oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> he chose us in him. right? It
2: doesn't say that's, he chose him. That's he right. He him. In us. Right. Or, or he chose
0: him. Yeah. Uh, I just bring this up. This is actually an old um, uh, doctrinal error on election. It was actually popularized by this man. Karl Barth is part of a group that was known in the uh, early uh, 20th century as the Neo-Orthodox, the Neo-Orthodox group. And um, the reason why Neo-Orthodoxy is so famous is because of their, uh, their views on, interesting enough, Wally, who were just there, uh, who, was Robert? Uh, uh, the Shepherd's Conference, inerrancy. Oh, Robert, there's Robert right so <clears throat> karl bart and and those like him others like emil bruner they had this deficient view of inerrancy that said the word of god became inspired to you when the spirit applied it to you and illuminated your mind and heart then the word becomes inspired that is also Existentialism. That is another form of existentialism. Which, what is existentialism? Existentialism is that everything that conform every, every the reality that you experience is ultimately derived from your own personal experience. Existentialism, you know, subjective, subjective subjectivism, um, relativism, those types of things. Uh, that's where it all comes from. But um, but Karl Barth taught this view of election that God only truly elected Christ, we are in Christ, and only in that sense are we chosen by God. And uh, that simply will not do. I mean, Tony, you nailed it right on the head. Those whom he foreknew, you know what I mean? So, and it also just shows you that how important foreknowledge is. Because foreknowledge, maybe a little distinction from election, means God's predetermined will to set his covenant love upon you And on the basis of that decision, then he makes his decision to elect, which is so hard just to splinter that up in our mind, but if we don't, we get in trouble, you know, and that's kind of the trouble that this particular view gets into. Uh, This passage, however, I want you to see, you guys are all there, I I want you to see what it's giving us, okay? Let me just hurry up. Uh, It gives us the timing, the sphere, the manner, and the purpose of our election, Right. One more. One more. There you go. I don't know how to use this, by the way. This mm-hmm. keynote thing. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> Robert, you'd be proud of me, man. <laughs> I am just trying to, okay, whatever. It looks right. I don't know. I, I don't know how to use this, this stuff. It just, uh, But it's, it's, it's useful, right? It's handy. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the way I write. Horrible. I mean, you can read this. You can't read that. Um, the timing of our election before the foundation of the world The sphere of our election, certainly in Christ, united to Christ and not separate from Christ. The manner of our election and our predestination, which at the end of verse 4, it says, in love. But then verse 5 begins with, uh, uh, he predestined us, right? And so, uh, how many of you guys see a period before the word in love? In front of the word in. Is there a period there? That's right. That's, that's probably more accurate. In love he predestined us. And then it gives us the purpose of our election and our predestination to adoption. And then finally, to praise. Folks, uh, the implications of this theology is very, very important. The significance of it is very important. It will determine whether or not you have either a God-centered or a man-centered World view, how you view the world, who is in charge, uh, who is sovereign, right? Uh, I saw a book once, The Sovereignty of Man. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, um, some of you might know who wrote that book, but anyway, uh, The Sovereignty of Man. But uh, no, it is the sovereignty of God, because <coughs> what does it mean to be sovereign? To be sovereign means that you are, that you are number one, that you are primary, that it's your authority, it's your dominion, it's your uh it's your uh, uh, rule uh, that counts, and um, so it really has massive implications. Reform theology is very important. Listen, I tell you what, I have looked through. A lot of people ask me, "How do you know which books are good?" They come over to my house. I give them the grand tour. They say, "Well, how do you know which books are good?" Right. Well, at least for my and I, I can honestly say I have ran the gamut on. Uh, theological traditions, history. The, and it was really when I was started, you know, started studying historical theology, guys like Justo Gonzalez, when you really begin understanding historical theology, when someone says, oh, I don't like the word Calvinism. I don't like the word Reformed. I don't want to identify with anything like that. You know, I, I don't really like to follow a man. And we, maybe we've all said that. Maybe you still say that. Now, I don't mean to offend you, But what that really means is that there is a historical ignorance going on there. You must understand, my friends, the the history of ideas, the origin of ideas. You are not a primary thinker. There is no view on election that you will come to that has not already been espoused. There is no view of the Christian life. There is no doctrine. You're not going to come up with some novel doctrine no one has ever heard of before. The new perspective is not new. It's as old as Catholicism. Middle knowledge and Molinism is not new. It's as old as Pelagian. It's as old as Plato. So when you start realizing, no, we have to be historically honest about our, about our, what our beliefs, uh, then you begin to say, well, if I'm historically honest, I line up with the, 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 the reformers and their view of these things. Right? Yes, sir.
1: I think... Um I think it's fair to say that you can agree with what Calvin taught,
0: mm-hmm. and not say that you're Calvin. <laughs> yeah, you know I, what know. What I, mean? I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, it, it also it's it's also for uh, it's also a bit pragmatic, you know. It makes it easier to get along in the conversation, just to identify where we stand. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, what I'm m- even more concerned with is tradition. You know, I mean, what is our tradition? You know, where do we come from? And to me, the reformed faith is that which most accurately represents the teaching of Scripture. Um, and uh, you think of how it affects anthropology, the nature of the will, autonomy. Man's, is man self-determining? Does man have total autonomous freedom from God? No, of course not, or else God would not be sovereign. Um, It also is important for us to understand the difference between fatalism and biblical Christianity. That we are not fatalists. That we don't believe that things are just predetermined just because. That's the way it is, right? Uh, What's the slogan? That's just the way it is. No, that's not a Christian slogan. Uh, Things are the way they are for one great divine and religious reason. And that is for the glory of God. It's the difference between fatalism and biblical Christianity. It's not an arbitrary source that determines all things. No, 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 it's not an arbitrary source. It is a divine, biblical. it's the Trinitarian source. Kim, I'm sorry, you're, you've got the last... I, I I'll give you the last word. That's okay. Um, well, I was just going to add that, like when I'm
2: talking to other friends that don't understand... they have their gospel, their their belief system kind of mixed up and coming from backgrounds like Church of Christ, you know, the only thing I could, I, I guess to put it simple, even for a servant or anyone, I was just explaining that, so let's just put it this way, when I talk about the Puritans and, and you know, Reformed Theology, it's the same gospel, it's the gospel that I believe, yeah. and I said, so when I go to the army, there are many of you, it's not the same gospel. Yeah. When I go to a Pentecostal, you know, Word of Faith, move, it's not the same gospel. So that was the only way I could really narrow it down. And then I said, of course, it's just biblical Christianity. But when you're talking with someone, you know, yeah, it's almost like you have to explain it that way. It's not like you want to walk around with this title. Because yeah. I was one of those. At first I was like, well, I'm just a Christian. I mean, I'm not a Calvinist, you know. And then when somebody that was reformed explained to me, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know that's right so, um, yeah, I was just going to say it's
0: the same alright folks we're dismissed we're out of time I'm over time so mm-hmm. God bless you all